I was diagnosed one week after my 28th birthday. Going in and hearing those fateful words of the lump is malignant isn't anything you can really prepare yourself to hear. Knowing that you have other people to go through it with you does make it a little bit easier. If I can be here every day and even just make one patient smile or maybe make that day a little bit easier, I feel like that's at least doing something. This is Voices, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast that features firsthand experiences from cancer patients. In this episode of Voices, we hear from Maggie, who was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 28. Maggie chats with her oncologist, Dr. Ann Partridge, who is the founder and director of the program for young women with breast cancer at the Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers at Dana-Farber. The two discuss some of the important decisions young breast cancer patients face and how those decisions can impact fertility and future plans for a family. I was diagnosed um, one week after my 28th birthday. I was in a classroom when I got a call from my primary care telling me that I needed to come in to review some test results. And at that point, I knew that it wasn't good news. Um, and going in and hearing those fateful words of the lump is malignant isn't anything you can really prepare yourself to hear. Um, and you kind of feel like the world is completely falling down around you, um, but you somehow have to stay up and keep moving forward. And that's what my husband and I did and came to Dana-Farber three days later um, and met Dr. Partridge. And where were you in your life when all that started? You were a student? I was. I was in my last semester of graduate school studying to be a nurse practitioner. I was uh, enrolled in a family nurse practitioner program at UMass and had one semester left and wasn't anticipating that this would be part of the semester. But it was and we figured it out and have you to thank for that. And it sounds like you yourself had a lot of thoughts and emotions to deal with at diagnosis. Tell us a little bit more about that and how your family and friends reacted to. So it's a good point. It's something as a 28-year-old you never really anticipate this is going to be part of your life's journey and you don't really know how you handle it until you do. I think my initial thoughts when I was first diagnosed was I was more concerned about my husband than myself. My husband had sadly lost his dad to cancer about 14 months prior to my diagnosis and I was afraid that he would hear the words cancer and he would think death and I knew that that just wasn't true and I knew that there was hope and I knew that there would be a light at the end of the tunnel and I my worry was getting him through this not necessarily myself so on one part it was hard because I felt like I needed to be strong and be supportive of my family and my friends to reassure them that I would be okay having a medical background and being in school as a you know I was a nurse studying to be a nurse practitioner knowing I didn't know much about breast cancer, but knowing what I did at the time, having some sense that I, you know, I would be okay and be able to get through this, um, and having to be, I feel like, the support system for my family and friends to let them know that I would be okay. Do you think that was different because you're a healthcare provider or at that time you were training to be one? Because I often see that sometimes in families, it's the patient supporting the family, and sometimes it's the other way around. Did that, and did that change through the, the care continuum? That's a good question. I don't, 
I think it always was like that. And I think, and probably part of it was because I was a healthcare provider and could provide some reassurance and maybe they kind of believed me. And I think part of it was too, it made me feel better knowing that they were feeling better. So maybe it was a little bit selfish. <laughs> a lot of people talk about um, the early part of diagnosis and that limbo phase of yeah. you don't know what you have and you don't know what you have to do about it yet. Tell us about that process for you. So you find out you're diagnosed, you get into Dana-Farber, and then what? So for me, I think that was the hardest part. You go in and you, you know, you, you, like I said before, you feel like the world has fallen, you know, the floor below you has fallen out and you have nowhere to go. And you don't know what's ahead. You don't know what your diagnosis is. You don't know what the treatment plan's gonna be. You don't know what the plan for surgery is. I think all of that in your brain trying to process it makes it really hard to make decisions. We know decision making is difficult anyway, but when you're trying to process so much at one time, I think it's really hard to stay focused and see clearly. Fortunately, I had a pretty amazing oncologist that helped me through that process. <laughs> it is, it's really hard and it's so important to have an amazing support team as your, you know, your healthcare providers because I, there is so much unknown, and not only unknown, but so much that you might not understand. This is all new, you know, to you. And I think that part was really hard, and not knowing what the next steps were going to be. I'm a planner. I like to have, you know, things in line, and having no idea what would be in next is, I think, a really, really, really hard challenge. And not only what's next with the breast cancer diagnosis, but I think what's next beyond that. You know, being 28 years old, you know, I was starting to think about having a family in the near, really near future. And I think um, having everything in your life kind of come to a halt, particularly that of something that was really important to me, when is that going to fit in? Is that going to fit into my future? I think those questions were also, you know, am I going to die tomorrow is always on your mind when you first get diagnosed with cancer. And then the next thing in your mind is, you know, am I going to live for a couple years? Am I going to be able to have a family? And I think those things are all kind of swirling in your mind as you're trying to process what's happening and then what your next steps are for treatment. So you picked your team. I picked my team, my all-star team. The biggest thing is that, you know, having a multidisciplinary team, you know, you have surgery and you have oncology, you have medonc and then you have radiation oncology of kind of deciding the plan together. You know, there's a lot in the media about mastectomies and, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, talk about it that might not be necessarily um, specific to each patient. And I think having a conversation, you know, with you about what would be the next best step with regards to surgery, you know, we'll start there because that was my first step in my treatment plan of talking with Dr. Dominici of saying, you know, comparing the data between mastectomy versus lumpectomy and radiation um, and weighing those pros and cons. And I think, you know, you're, you're met with this difficult decision of, you know, for me, um, you know, my tumor size was about two centimeters, so it wasn't large. They were able to do a lumpectomy enough where they wouldn't have to do an entire reconstruction of the breast. But breastfeeding, you know, again, we come back to this fertility thing and having a family, the ability to be able to hopefully breastfeed when I have children was really important to me and hopefully preserving that um, definitely weighed into my decision with regards to surgery, for sure. Um, and I think, ha taught, but, but we had to talk it out, you know, putting all the options on the table. What's the best for me? I think that was key in some of the first meetings that we had. 
and that's surgery. Now for treatment, um, this was the tough one, if you remember. I do remember. <laughs> I'll never forget a moment. Um, I was standing on Charles Street in Beacon Hill in the pouring rain, trying to have, I was supposed to go to dinner with my friends, but talking to you because you called me at like, you know, 8 p.m. on like a Friday night to talk me through it because that's just how dedicated you are. And I, that moment will forever be ingrained in me because I was, this was a heavy, this was a hard decision. Um, and just to give people a little background, um, I have, uh, I was invasive ductal carcinoma with triple positive breast cancer. And it really came down to, you know, do I do the standard regimen, which would be um, cytoxin, adriamycin, and then followed by taxol herceptin. And that was kind of the standard regimen for my cancer, my age, um, and everything. But being with Dr. Partridge, being at Dana-Farber, you are on the cutting edge of research. You know, I, I'm really fortunate because there was a study, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Partridge, but there's a study that had been performed but hadn't been published yet showing that with this particular type of cancer, the survival rates or the um, recurrence rates after three years were the same for the arm that of patients that just received taxol herceptin versus the patients that received adriamycin cytoxan and taxol herceptin, um, which is a pretty remarkable finding because adriamycin and cytoxan come with other toxicities, increased risk of infertility, increased risk of secondary malignancies, all of these um, risks that would weigh on my mind for in the future. We had just completed a study that was led by my colleagues at Dana-Farber that had said basically if we give the anti-HER2 therapy with just a little bit of chemo and not what I call the kitchen sink chemo to people with lower risk HER2 positive breast cancer, that's one of the three receptors we look for in breast cancers. They're, that's what she, why Maggie called it triple positive. So <laughs> ER positive, PR positive, and HER2 positive, that's the type of breast cancer she had. If someone has a lower risk, meaning smaller size and or lymph node negative breast cancer, we've, we were asking the question scientifically and medically, is it okay to target the HER2 with some chemo backbone, because we know that the anti-HER2 therapy works better with some chemo backbone, but not give her all of the chemo that went with the standard regimen? And the answer was yes. In a you know, one-arm study, the results were just so good that it now has changed the standard of care. At the time when Maggie came in, the study wasn't fully done yet. It wasn't completely cooked. So we had the information, but it was a little early. And I think that's why we were all a little bit kind of careful around the recommending it. And Maggie was obviously careful about the, whether or not this was right for her when she weighed her options. Right. I think that, that part for me as especially now that I'm, you know, four years out from diagnosis as I sit back and reflect, and think, you know, being here at Dana-Farber with Dr. Partridge, I just feel so fortunate because at, you know, at any other hospital, I might have gotten the full kitchen sink chemo, which, and maybe I'd be in the exact same spot now, and I could very well be, but um, maybe saving me some toxicity either then or down the road, I feel um, eternally grateful for. Um, but that was a really difficult decision. You know, I was kind of on, I was on the fence, teeter-tottering, of what to do, but Dr. Partridge and her team really, really helped me through that.
So one of the things that is unique to being diagnosed with cancer as a young person is that, of course, people are in their childbearing ages um, for women, uh, and our treatments can impact on their fertility. And so it's really important when a person comes in for us as their providers to consider that with them. Because they may be a deer in the headlights and may be totally overwhelmed by the cancer process. When you're talking about very young people, sometimes they're, they're so young that they're not even thinking about future families. Uh, and so you really need to work with the patient and sometimes their parents, uh, when you're talking about adolescent and young adults, to think forward and say, okay, this person may care about fertility in the future. As an adult woman, you can say, do you care about fertility? And some people are done with their families. Some people haven't even begun or in the middle of it. And so that consideration can be of paramount importance for our young patients. And so once you've had that conversation and you've figured out, you've figured out their preferences, then it's incumbent on us as the providers to think about their treatment options in the context of not only what it will do to the cancer, but what, how it might impact on this other very important life goal. And breast cancer treatments can affect fertility in two ways. One, they can diminish ovarian reserve if they are chemotherapy. So chemotherapy can directly kill off ovary cells, basically. It can also impact on fertility in that Hormonal therapies are often given for breast cancer. Even in young women, most of them will have hormone-sensitive breast cancer, and the hormone treatments usually are prescribed for five years or longer. And that during that time, even though the hormones themselves don't typically hurt the ovaries, you're not supposed to get pregnant during that time because it can cause birth defects. And during that time, the ovary is aging which of course is associated with lowering of fertility. The older one is, the lower the fertility. And so it's complex for any young woman who comes in and you need to think about, okay, what does she need to get? Does she need chemo or not? Will that be a hit on her ovaries and fertility? And does she need hormonal therapy and how long will we want her to take it? And it's also related to how old they are. So a 25-year-old coming in has a much lower chance of becoming infertile with even the kitchen sink chemotherapy, in fact, the chances are pretty low compared to a 35-year-old where fertility is already starting to go down and then we're going to hit them with you know, multi-agent chemotherapy. And then, of course, if you're going to wait another five years to give them full endocrine therapy or longer, their fertility is going into the toilet. And so we do different things and counsel people differently depending on both their disease and treatment needs, which of course are related, as well as how old they are, and, and if they're interested and they're at high risk of infertility, we often send them to the reproductive endocrinology team. Those are the fertility doctors or the IVF doctors, and we work very closely and have developed a programmatic approach with our fertility doctors at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, but we also collaborate with fertility doctors around the region to help patients to preserve fertility if appropriate, before they start their therapy. We also do a lot of stuff in their survivorship. So when Maggie came in, um, she cared about her fertility. She was actually quite young. Her risk of losing her fertility in the short term was not high, uh, but she was going to take endocrine therapy. This was a critical issue for her, and so it played into her decision to do a chemotherapy that was a little lesser, but now we know is just as effective. So 
I got diagnosed, we were talking about treatment and then we, you know, I had to have surgery. So I had surgery and it really wasn't until then we started talking about chemotherapy that then I realized, whoa, 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 like this is really important to me. I hadn't really fully understood, I think, the gravity of, of and even though the risk of the infertility is low, it's still a risk and it's something that was obviously really important to me. And it kind of just hit me one day um, after surgery and I realized that if I, wa I had to, I wanted to bank embryos before chemotherapy. I'm so, so grateful that I did it. Um, like Dr. Partridge said, I might never need them, but knowing that I have 15 embryos on ice if necessary, you know, it gives me a little bit more peace to every time I take and swallow that tamoxifen tablet every day. So interesting that you say that as you swallow your tamoxifen pill because there was just a study published that showed that young women who are interested in fertility may be less likely to start their tamoxifen or to take it regularly. And of course, tamoxifen in our endocrine therapies dramatically improve the risk of recurrence and improve survival. Right. So preserving fertility and having that peace of mind that you've got these eggs banked or embryos banked may be not only a good thing for a person's peace of mind and you know, desire for future fertility mm -hmm. and quality of life, but it actually may help them to take their tamoxifen right, better, which may actually improve not just their survivorship, but their survival. Right. What we tried to do from early on, and as a part of both the research we're doing as well as just for any individual patient, is to kind of vet their personal situation. You know, what do they care about? What are their preferences? Uh, which side effects matter most to them? And, and to pick the regimen that we think is right both to treat their disease most effectively to help them live as long as possible, mm -hmm. of course, but also when there are choices to live as well as possible. And then for young patients, that's where we consider not only you know, long-term side effects like cardiac issues or um, issues like you know, development of secondary leukemia, but we also consider their fertility concerns. We also consider their body image concerns or the idea of nursing when we help them to make decisions about what's the best surgical and reconstructive options if they're going to go on to need that. Um, and we also consider their, you know, and this is all related, their emotional concerns. So we think about everybody's emotions when we're taking care of them, of course. Uh, it's not just, you know, doctors at spas who think about the whole patient. <laughs> we all do think about that and try to treat people holistically. Um, and so, you know, the psychosocial concerns or the emotional concerns, of course, are important to everyone. But for our younger patients, um, they can be that much more heavy just because of where they are in their lives. So that's, that's why we developed our Young Women's Program, and that's why um, we do a lot to try to kind of support our younger patients like Maggie to not only get the best medical care possible but also the best supportive care surrounding their diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. As a young adult cancer patient, I think the one thing that at least I wanted and I think other people really want is some sense of normalcy. And I think my through my journey, you know, although I 
had cancer and chemo and radiation and surgery, you know, I'm still trying to keep some sense of a normal life. And I think that's huge. And, and to be able to live my life as I had always hoped that I could with some bumps in the road, but, you know, otherwise try to get on the other side of it. And as a healthcare provider yeah. now, and now you're actually a nurse practitioner at Dana-Farber, we've even worked on the same floor together. <laughs> I'm interested in how you feel now and you know, even earlier on, because you are seeing the slings and arrows faced by cancer patients yeah. every day, which is a little different than your average survivor. And I can say from my experience, I care for a lot of healthcare providers because of course we get cancer too, mm -hmm. we get breast cancer. Uh, which is where I focus, and it is a little different to care for a healthcare provider for two reasons for me. One is because, of course, they tend to have an insider view of things, which can be a good thing and it can also be a bad thing. <laughs> I always joke that I, I don't care for my own children, even though I'm a doctor, because I know just enough to be dangerous to them. I try not to care for myself either and allow doctors to make the decisions because I can't be unbiased. Right. And then when I'm caring for someone who's a colleague, uh, I have to be very careful, and sometimes these colleagues become friends, of course, right. like you and I, um, I have to be very careful to keep myself objective and to check myself at the door because there is the risk of this kind of VIPism, what I would call it, which is basically, you know, I don't want to over or under treat you because I have too much skin in the game, right. if, if you follow yeah, me. Course. Doesn't mean I don't care about all my patients, right. it's just, you know, it's the same reason you don't treat family members or close right. friends. Right. And so with a colleague, you gotta be super careful as well. And I, I think I, I think I do okay, you, you can do, tell me the difference. But I try and make sure that we do all the medical stuff and I go through all the checks before we start you know, chatting about work <laughs> in our visits. I don't know, you tell me no, your perspective. I, I, no, I completely agree. You know, as we talked a little bit before, I was in school when I was diagnosed and I was studying to be a family nurse practitioner. I was working as a nurse at the time and studying to be a family nurse practitioner with thoughts of getting into um, family medicine or pediatrics. That was initially where my, I thought my career path would go. And then you, you know, I got diagnosed with breast cancer and my world kind of flipped upside down. But at the same time, it really grounded me in the sense of I got amazing care here from you and from Ann Kelly and from my you know, infusion nurses, Karen and Carrie and the whole team on Y9. And it, totally transformed how I viewed care in general and then oncology care. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm in such a unique position. I'm graduating from, you know, school. I studied for my boards. I passed to become an NP. And I felt so compelled to give back. I, I don't know why I felt this overwhelming sense of I felt so grateful that I needed to do something. And I was in such a unique position that I as an NP, I could kind of tailor my career. And I said, I need to do something to give back to others and almost pay it forward in a sense. So I was very fortunate to get a job at Dana-Farber and now I work as an NP here and get to care for patients every day. And um, I feel that, you know, while the cancer battle is huge, that if I can be here every day and even just make one patient smile or maybe make that day a little bit easier, I feel like Hopefully, that's at least doing something. One of the things that I think you could probably help other patients with your advice about, because you deal with it all the time, 
that comes up for other patients is they'll hear a cancer story, and as we all know, unfortunately, they're not all good stories. Yeah. And um, fortunately, in breast cancer, the majority are. Uh, so you hear those stories all the time. You live those stories with your patients. Mm -hmm. How do you manage that emotionally when it's not a good story, it's not a good experience, and what kind of advice do you have for other patients who may be in that phase where they're survivors and, or they're early in their diagnosis and people are coming up to them saying, oh, I, my, my friend had cancer and, and then the story is not a good one. Right. How do you manage all that? I think that's a really good point. Um, I definitely experienced that, especially even before I became an NP here. Everyone feels compelled to tell you stories about their loved one that had cancer, and sometimes the outcomes aren't great. And I don't know why people sometimes feel it necessary to share those with you, but they do. <laughs> how I view it, and how I would encourage other young women to view this, is that a couple ways. I look at it, one, is that you know, cancer isn't cancer isn't cancer. They're not all equal. We call it cancer because it's you know this catch-all for all of these different diseases, but they all behave so differently, and every patient's so different, and every experience is so different. And I would encourage people to kind of look beyond that and say that you know their experience is unique, and that they should really not compare themselves to maybe what Grant, what happened to Grandpa Joe, you know. And I think and to realize that. Um, they're not all the same. I think also an important thing I think for people to understand too is that cancer is changing in how we view it and that sometimes in looking at it like almost more like a chronic disease of something that we can control, um, even people that have metastatic disease that can live with it and that's something that is pretty amazing and just because somebody has metastatic disease that might mean that they're just living like someone with diabetes on a medicine for a really long time and I think that's another way that this, the world of oncology is changing that some people might not realize. My other advice to people, I think, is take everything that people tell you with a grain of salt, in addition to the stories of family members or friends that have had cancer. Also, there's just some there's bad information out there, and I think I would get your information from your oncology team or you know medical journals and, and not just don't read on the internet. <laughs> Or be careful. Please, just read. be careful. There's so much bad information out there. And I think it can, when you get diagnosed with cancer, your world can go and your mind can go to a really dark place really quickly. And I would just caution people to be careful about what you read because it can be scary. Do you have any other advice that you would, you know, if you'd known then that you'd want all young women with breast cancer to know? coming into the oncology yeah. clinic or right after diagnosis or any time? For sure, yeah, I think there's a couple things. I think, one, you know I struggled a lot with my decision about what to do for treatment. And once I made that decision, I realized that I needed to be confident in that decision and that there was, you know, I couldn't turn around and go back in time and change it. And I would tell people to be confident when you make these decisions, whether it's for surgery or certain chemotherapies, and to be confident in the decision that you make and move forward with it. And there's, you can't go back, you can't change things, and just realize that the decision you made is the right one and just kind of move forward. I think that's something I learned and it took me a while to get there. You mean you, I, you kind of had regrets for a little yeah, while? Yeah, I did. I wondered, did I make the wrong decision? I remember having thoughts of saying, 
oh, I, you know, did one of the reasons I did this was to hopefully preserve my fertility a little more. And what if I recur and I can't be around to even have children? You know, that was a scary thought. I, you know, now feel really confident in the decision that I made, particularly now that even more data has come out in that study. Yeah. You are in an <laughs> that unusual helps. place. Um, I, I will say, I tell patients all the time, you know, don't take too long to make your decision because living in the limbo can to, be really that's hard. Totally. But also, once you make it, you made the yeah. best decision for you with the information you had and 100%. where you were. I will support you 100%. And you really, you can look back, but the value of looking back, unless it's going to help inform your future. It can just torture you. You can torture yourself. Right? <laughs> so my advice would be don't do that. Just move forward. Be confident in the decision that you made. It's the right one. You made it for a reason in that time. And just be confident in that. And that's my advice, I think, to people. The other thing I really would want people to know is that you're not alone. You feel like you're alone, and I felt that way for a long time, um, but have since gotten connected with the program for young women and have made some you know, lifelong, unbelievable friends, and we still help each other through it. That's why, in part, we built the program for young women, to give young women a home, a mm -hmm. place to feel that they can connect as well as a virtual home as well as get the expertise and the care tailored at least to the needs that are either unique to being young or accentuated by being young. I think sometimes women at the very beginning aren't want any bit of information they can get. And I think it, that can change for any given woman over time. So one of our approaches has been to offer things repeatedly. And you're part of the program unless you tell us to leave you alone, but you can play or pass for any of the things we offer. And we do often find, both with the clinical stuff we offer as well as the research opportunities, women come and go at different periods. So my advice to women out there listening or to any patient with a disease like breast cancer is to kind of be patient with yourself. Don't push things away completely. But say, you know, I really am not up for that right now. Can we revisit that in the future? Because you may find that what feels like just a pain in the neck or something you don't need at one point may be the saving grace later on when you do need it. I think you're totally right. I don't even remember someone coming to talk to me my first visit because I think it was such a blur. I think I was so focused on getting through school and being, you know, I didn't even... I processed that I had breast cancer and I was having a hard time with it, but I kind of compartmentalized it until I was done with school because I needed to focus on getting my degree. <laughs> and for me, that was probably a good way to cope at that time, but then later it kind of hit me and that's when I said, okay, I need the support. And then really jumped kind of headfirst into the program. And I you know, I feel so grateful that it exists. It's a unique um, opportunity and I'm really, really lucky to be part of it. You know, there's always still ups and downs and. I think having those connections and having those relationships or even, you know, having whether it's a support group or going to some of the events they have when they do a forum in October, Young Women's Forum, that is unbelievably informative that um, I've been to. And, and there's just ways to connect and ways to realize that we're kind of in this together and that you don't need to be home by yourself and alone. It, the world is a big, bad, dark, scary place when you feel that way. And I wouldn't want anyone to think that they're doing it by themselves because they're not. Thank you for listening to this episode of Voices. 
featuring breast cancer patient Maggie and Dr. Ann Partridge, founder director of the Program for Young Women with Breast Cancer at the Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers at Dana-Farber. To hear more episodes of Voices and learn about other podcasts from Dana-Farber, visit www.danafarber.org podcasts. 